Good morning, church. My name is Michael, and I'm your scripture reader for today. Romans 11, verses 1 to 10. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning once again. I do see a few new faces with us this morning. And for those of you who are new, my name is Joel. I'm the associate pastor serving here at One Covenant Church. And as we come before God to hear His word this morning, let us seek, for, seek His blessing and ask for His help to understand His word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in awe of you, Lord, for you are the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And Father, we come before you amazed at what, at how, amazed at the grace that you have shown all of us, Lord, that indeed your grace is so remarkable. And Father, I pray that as we come before you and as we hear from your word this morning, I pray that we will indeed be moved by the message of your gospel. I pray that you will help us to deepen our love towards you and towards one another. And so help us, Lord, and be with us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, for those of you who are new to the church, we are in the middle of a sermon series looking at chapters 9 to 11 of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. I mentioned at the beginning of the series that these chapters are aimed at addressing the so-called problem of Israel. And the question has to do with Israel's rejection of the Messiah. You know, why has Israel, the old covenant people of God, why have they rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and why have they turned their backs on him? You know, does this mean that it's possible for God's word and for his promises to fail? And what does this mean for the church, the new covenant people of God? Well, in these chapters, Paul is determined to show us that God's word cannot fail. And it's this reality that gives us confidence that God will deliver on his promises. And Paul develops his answer throughout these chapters. And in chapter 9, he tells us that Israel's unbelief has its eternal origin in the sovereignty of God, that God is absolutely sovereign with regards to salvation, that He chose some unto salvation while passing by others. And in chapter 10, we see the role of human responsibility in salvation. Salvation is through faith 
in the gospel message proclaimed. We're not simply called to hear the gospel, but we are called to confess it with our lips and to believe it with all of our hearts. And this is what Paul has covered so far. Our chapter 11 continues the train of thought in the previous chapters. It brings together divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and it shows how God relates to Israel right now in the present moment and how he will relate to them in the future. And we'll see in our passage this morning that God is not yet done with Israel, that his plan for Israel is ongoing. And through this, we'll see the remarkable grace of God on display. Now, as we turn to Paul's answer about Israel, you may ask yourself, you know, how does this apply to me? You know, what does Paul's answer about Israel have anything to do with me as a Gentile believer? And if you're not a Christian joining us this morning, you may think that this is an arcane topic which has no relevance for you. Well, this chapter is important for this reason because it tells us that it's important for us to have a vital relationship with God. We need to have a vital relationship with God. See, throughout this chapter, we'll see that being religious doesn't guarantee that you will be saved. You know, you can sit under years of faithful, gospel-centered preaching and not be a believer. Or you can be a faithful churchgoer who've never missed a Sunday worship service and still be outside of the kingdom of God. You know, it's not the right things that we do which save us, but it's Jesus Christ who saves us by grace through faith in Him. And once we have that in mind, once we get that, then we'll begin to appreciate the goodness of God's grace. And so I pray that that will be the case for us as we look at this chapter. And so let's turn to our passage this morning and we'll look at, look at this in three points. We'll look at transforming grace, we'll look at astonishing grace, and we'll look at sobering judgment. So if you have Bibles with me or if you have bulletins, turn with me to look at Romans chapter 11, verses 1. To 10, and we begin with verse 1. This is what Paul says. I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means? Well, Paul begins by asking whether God has rejected his people, Israel. And it's a rhetorical question that anticipates a specific answer. And how did Paul respond? He says, by no means. And it was the same visceral response that he gave in the previous chapters. The older translations capture the sense of this by saying, God forbid, may it never be the case. And this is interesting because of what Paul said right before this passage. You see, back in Romans chapter 10, verse 21, Paul, Paul speaks about the unbelieving response of Israel to God's grace. And this is what Paul said. Back in chapter 10, verse 21. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, God has shown mercy. He has shown patience towards his people. And yet they remain disobedient towards him. And for some people who are hearing this, they will actually argue as follows. You know, since God's people have rejected him, then it seems necessary in light of God's justice for God to then reject his people. So that's the thinking of some of the people who are hearing the Apostle 
Paul. And yet this is the logic, the very logic that Paul seeks to undermine. And the way he does so was by appealing to himself. So look at verses 1 to 2 with me. This is what Paul says. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So Paul, as a Jew, says that he is living proof that God is still working in Israel. Now, if you know who Paul was before he was converted, you can begin to appreciate the transforming power of God's grace. And the New Testament gives us a glimpse of Paul's former life. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, we are told that he was ravaging the church and he was throwing Christians into prison. And in Paul's own words, in Philippians chapter 3, he calls himself, in verse 6, a persecutor of the church. Paul was a Pharisee who was zealous for the Lord. In fact, he was so zealous that he was blameless in the eyes of people. And these were, he had all of these achievements and he boasted in all of them. He had all of these achievements under his belt. And yet what happened to him? When Acts chapter 9, Paul had an encounter with the resurrected Christ on the Damascus Road. And that encounter changed him completely. You know, Paul trusted in Jesus and he disregarded every achievement under his belt such that he could say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And this right here is the power of God unto salvation that the gospel gives us. You know, in other words, what Paul is saying is this, that God's grace it's so powerful that it could change and transform and transform a rebellious person like me. Paul's conversion is evidence that God has not rejected his people, that there are those who belong to true Israel within Israel, and Paul points to himself as someone who belongs to true Israel. And these same believers are those that God foreknew. Now here, Paul is picking up on the language that he used back in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, where he says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The word foreknew does not refer to knowledge from foresight, but rather it expresses the special love that God has for His people. This is God's love for us before the foundation of the world, that God loved us even before He created us. And since God loved us from eternity past, He will continue to love us and He will not reject us. And the same may be said for those who belong to true Israel. Remember what Paul said, in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, where he says that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And he tells us that there's a spiritual Israel within Israel, and only those who belong to spiritual Israel are the objects of God's redeeming love. And furthermore, we see that God's grace doesn't just leave us where we are. In fact, His grace transforms us. It transforms those who believe in Jesus Christ, whether you're a Jew 
or a Gentile. Now, this looks different in the lives of different people. Now, for some of us, perhaps we had a very dramatic conversion experience and perhaps we had a very dramatic life change, just like the Apostle Paul. But for others, it looks pretty different. You know, perhaps you grew up in a Christian home and you cannot remember a time when you didn't know the Lord. You know, there was no drastic, drastic change that happened in your life, you know, where you went from, you know, reading your Bible, you know, 10 minutes every week to reading it 12 hours every day or something like that, something super drastic that actually happened. But the whole point that Paul is bringing up is this, that it's not about how drastic the conversion actually is, but it's whether there is evidence of God's grace in your life, whether there's evidence that God is actually working in your life. Now, we may think, we may think about this in terms of driving a car to a specific destination. Now, when it comes to a Christian life, the question is not whether you are traveling at 8 kilometers per hour or 80 kilometers per hour. You know, it's not a competition to see who can get ahead spiritually. You know, you know it's not a competition to see who can get there the fastest. But what matters at the end of the day is the direction. What matters at the end of the day is the direction of your travel. It's the fact that you are actually moving the right direction and you are on and you are reaching that destination slowly but surely. And again, this looks different in the lives of individuals. You know, I was reading um, Colin Hansen's biography of the late Tim Keller and in that book, Hansen described how Keller became a believer. He grew up in a Christian home and he was known by his family as the Boy Scout because he was this rule-following, you know, good Christian boy back home. So he earned the nickname Boy Scout. And yet before he left his home for college, Keller actually had many doubts. He had doubts about wanting anything to do with the Christian faith. In fact, he was taught from young that salvation was by works. And maintaining this salvation was through your good works. This was the teachings that Tim Keller grew up with. And Keller, he realized that he was not able to live up to the high standards of God. And then one night while he was in college, he had a, this encounter, an unexpected encounter with Jesus Christ. And that encounter changed his very life. And what happened was this, that and that very night, he all of a sudden, he sensed his personal need for God. Keller saw his own sins. He saw his own failures, and that led him to the end of himself. And when he got there, when he reached there, what he realized was this, that there was nothing that he could do to earn God's salvation. And it was at that point that he repented and entrusted in his Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when asked about his conversion, you know, Keller couldn't remember anything that was drastic. He couldn't remember anything that was dramatic about his conversion. Now, for him, what changed was this, that he had a new sense of reality in his prayer life, and he saw the Bible coming alive in a way that has never happened before. But at the same time, his friends actually noticed that he became a different person. In fact, his close friend, Bruce Henderson, actually talks about it this way. He says that Keller became a lot kinder. He became a lot kinder and you could reach him emotionally. And all of a sudden, he was present and he was there. 
And so his friend actually noticed that, and that was careless conversion experience. And friends, this is what the gospel does to us, that the gospel has the power to change us. It changes us from the inside out. And, inc and this includes those who would seem most averse to the gospel. And the reality is this, that all of us who are believers, every one of us has a redemptive story to tell. It doesn't matter what, what form it takes, but all of us, we have a story to tell. And this is the beauty of God's diverse work in diverse people, that He works differently in the lives of different people. And sometimes, you know, these are changes that doesn't happen very immediately. These are not changes that are very obvious to us at first sight. And in fact, for ourselves, we may not see the changes in ourselves. But the fact is that other people, they can actually see that. People can see when we have changed. And I think that when we tell people that, when we tell people that they have actually changed for the better, it can actually be a good form, a great form of encouragement to one another. So let me encourage us to do this. Let me encourage us to encourage one another. Let me encourage us to encourage one another in our spiritual journeys. Let us help one another to see and to marvel at the grace of God, the transforming grace of God. And I pray that our eyes will be opened to what God is doing in all of our lives. And so this is a transforming work of God's grace. But in addition, what Paul helps us to see in this passage is to see the astonishing nature of God's grace. So let's turn to verses 3 to 6. And in these verses, Paul shows us how God's grace is seen in the salvation of unbelieving Israel. And the way Paul does is this. He makes his point in verses 5 to 6, and the support for that is given in verses 2 to 4. So let's begin by looking at what he says in verses 2 to 4. This is what Paul says. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Paul looks to the example of the Old Testament prophet to illustrate his point. He quotes from 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10, verse 14, and verse 18 to support what he's saying. And what's the point that Paul is making here? Well, if you look at verses 5 to 6, this is what he says. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, to understand how Paul is illustrating his point from 1 Kings 19, we need to understand its Old Testament context. You see, in 1 Kings, in the prior chapter, in chapter 18, the prophet Elijah found himself standing face to face with the prophets of Baal, and he was doing so at Mount Carmel, which was near the northern kingdom of Israel. And Elijah stood alone against these prophets. He was the only guy who's, who was standing there. And yet the prophet gained a victory over them. He triumphed over them. And as a result, what happened was that the prophets of Baal were actually executed. Now in 
First Kings chapter 19, what happened was this, that Queen Jezebel actually heard what Elijah had done. And so she decided to come for him. She decided to come after him for his life. And as he trembled in fear, Elijah actually ran away. Elijah fled to Mount Horeb and he pleaded with God. And Elijah, at a point of time, he really struggled. He really struggled as, because it seemed that he was the last guy standing. He was the last man standing, the last faithful man standing. And even him, the last faithful guy, he was in danger of losing his life. And the situation here is basically what we find in the book of Romans. Is God, and the question is this, is God able to keep his promises? Is he able to keep his promises in the face of the unbelief of his people? Because after all, it seems that only one person has remained faithful. It seems that only Elijah has remained faithful. And in Paul's example, it seems that maybe he's the only one who has remained faithful. But how did God respond to Elijah? Well, God responded by saying this. He said that the remnant was much bigger than what the prophet thought. God had actually reserved 7,000 people who will not worship Baal. And, it, and though Elijah, at a point of time, he was not able to see it in his distress, but the reality is this, the reality was much bigger. The reality was much grander than what he expected. Now, Paul says here in Romans chapter 11 that God's choice was by grace, that God's election is by grace. Now, that is true, but why does Paul say that? You know, why is he saying this in chapter 11? And the reason is this, that Paul is telling us that salvation for the Jews is by grace. Paul is telling us that salvation for the Jews is by grace, just as it is for the Gentiles. In fact, this was how salvation came to the people of God in the Old Covenant era, and it's the same in the New Covenant era. There never was and never will be a different way of salvation apart from the grace of God. To be saved by grace means that we, we are not saved by works. We are not saved by anything that's in us. We're not saved by our ethnic identities. We're not saved by the good things that we do. Rather, we are saved entirely by grace through faith. And that was the whole point of Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 21, that salvation comes through hearing and responding to the gospel by faith. And it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or you are Gentile, the salvation is by God's grace. And what's amazing is this, that even our faith, even faith itself is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so even our faith is a gift of God. That faith is not a work that we do, but it's a gift that we receive. And for us, because we are sinners, we are sinners who reject God. And because it's impossible for us to trust in God, apart from divine intervention, this means that God has to change us. That God has to change us before we trust in Him. 
And that's the same thing for us as Gentiles, and it's the same thing for those who belong to true Israel. And this is the message of the gospel of grace. Now, in verse 5, Paul tells us that true Israel is a remnant. It's a remnant chosen by grace. Now, in the Bible, a remnant refers to a minority. It often refers to a minority within a group. And this seems to be the same sense as well here in Romans chapter 11. Now, the problem is this. The problem is that we often make this number smaller than it actually is. We actually think of remnant and think of minority and we think, okay, it must be a very small number. And so we actually make it smaller than it, than it actually is. But what, what is Paul doing here? How is Paul arguing his point? And the whole point that Paul is doing is this, that he tells us about the 7,000 people that God has kept. He tells us about the 7,000 people that has remained faithful in the days of Elijah. And the whole point is this. The whole point is to help us to see that God's salvation is more inclusive than what we think it is. The whole point of bringing up the example of Elijah is to help us to see that God's salvation is more inclusive than we think it is. Now, Elijah, he thought that he was the only one who was faithful in his, in his day. He thought that he was the only one who was faithful to what God has commanded. But what God is saying is this, that that is untrue. God is saying that that is untrue. In, instead, what God says is this, that the remnant is much bigger than what the prophet had perceived, that there were thousands more, thousands more people who had remained faithful to God, and God chose them and preserved them entirely by grace. And what this shows us is that God's grace is far more surprising, is far more astonishing than what the prophet thought, and it's far more astonishing than what we can imagine. And friends, this is how astonishing God's grace actually is. You know, for us, you know, here in, the, in One Covenant Church, you know, we emphasize a lot on God's grace. You know, we teach, you know, the doctrines of grace and we really uphold the sovereignty of God and the great, and the great, the big grace of God Himself. And actually, you know, for those of us who actually believe in the doctrines of grace, you know, we are the ones who should be most humble when it comes to our salvation, that we should be the ones who marvel the most at what God is doing. But what often happens is this, that ironically, we allow our convictions to become a source of pride. We allow our beliefs, the things that we believe in, wow, the doctrines of grace, we allow these things to become a source of pride. And it's pride that boasts in the fact that we are a very small group of people. It's pride that boasts in how small we are and what happens is this, that we see ourselves unwittingly as the only ones that God has chosen. And this can come up in different ways in the life of the church. You know, perhaps it comes up in our fidelity to doctrine. We believe that we are the only ones who believe these doctrines and that we are the only ones who are saved by God. And perhaps it comes up in this way or it comes up in the ministries that we are engaged in. You know, we are the only ones who are doing ministries in this particular way, that we are the only ones who are doing ministry in a gospel-centered 
way. And then we boast in that fact, almost as if, you know, we are the only true Christians, you know, that are around here. But friends, let me just say this, and I want to make this clear, that this is precisely what the apostle is arguing against. This is precisely what Paul is disagreeing with. He's telling us this, that we are not saved because we are involved, heavily involved in all of these ministries that nobody else is, is doing, is involved in. He's not telling us that we are saved because we believe in some contentious doctrine that no one else affirms. What he tells us is that salvation is by grace and by grace alone. It's by God's grace alone. And if we believe in this, then we must be prepared to accept that God's grace is more inclusive than what we could imagine. Now, as you saw during the retreat, you know, we looked at the book of Revelation. We looked at Revelation chapter 7. We saw this vision of the Apostle John and the saints. You had the saints who were gathered around the throne of God, and it tells us that it's a great multitude that no one could number. It's, a, it's an innumerable crowd. There's so many people who are standing before the throne of God. And that number is not a small number. That number is not a small number. And that is the reality. That is the very thing that we can look forward to. And friends, we need to be encouraged by that. And I, and I hope that as we look at the grace of God, that we'll actually see that He has the power to be more inclusive than what we think it is that the grace of God is so powerful that it can overcome the most rebellious sinner and is more inclusive than we think it is. And we might be surprised at who we'll find on that day of worship. We'll be surprised at who actually appears with the heavenly crowd. Now, we may disagree, okay? I'm not saying there's no room for us to disagree about doctrine. You know, there are things that are secondary or even tertiary things they disagree about. But, I, but the thing is this, and I want to emphasize this, we should not let that break fellowship in the body of Christ. Let us not allow that. Let us not allow our disagreements to break fellowship among brothers and sisters in Christ. Because at the end of the day, salvation is not, is not the works that we do. It's not the beliefs. It's not even the particular beliefs that we hold on to but rather salvation is who we trust in. Salvation boils down to the person that we trust in. And I pray that our trust will indeed not be in what we do and not even be in how much we can do, but our trust will be solely in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And finally, we get... We come to the amazing and the remarkable grace of God. And as you look at the remarkable grace of God, we come face to face with, the flip, with its flip side. We come face to face with the sobering reality of judgment against sinners. And this is our final point. So let's begin by looking at verse 7. This is what Paul says. What then? Israel failed to obtain what he was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Paul tells us here that there are people, there are those within Israel who are elect, but the rest of them are hardened. So we've, so we've seen in the previous point that the elect remnant is not a small number. 
But the reality is this, that the majority of Israel are hardened. The, re- the majority of Israel have rejected God and they are insensitive to the good news of the gospel. And here, in these final verses, Paul quotes from every major part of the Old Testament. He quotes from the law, he quotes from the prophets, and he quotes from the writings. Every major part of the Old Testament to support his point. And this is what Paul says. He tells us first in verse 8, As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would, that would not hear, down to this very day. Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10, and Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, to describe the rejection of Israel. And these are passages in the Old Testament that point to the refusal of Israel to believe and to obey the gospel. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, Moses was speaking to Israel about how they've seen everything that God has done. You know, the people of Israel, they have seen the great signs. They have seen the great wonders of God while they were in Egypt. And they have seen how God has defeated their enemies and how God has delivered them from slavery. You know, they have tasted, they have seen the great work of salvation that comes from God. And what's the point in all of that? Well, the point is so that they may come and worship the true and living God. They were freed from slavery so that they may come and worship God. And yet, what did Israel do? What did Israel choose to do? Well, what they did was this. They chose to rebel against God. Israel chose to rebel against God and to disobey His commandments. And as a result, they found themselves wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And so it's a message that tells them that they have rejected God. So that's from Deuteronomy. And in Isaiah chapter 29, the prophet talks about or was prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. And the reason for that is because Israel have disobeyed God, that Israel have refused to obey God, that they have eyes that would not see, and they have ears that would not hear. You know, God gave them a spirit of stupor. You know, God has removed His restraining grace, and He has given them over to their sinful desires. And so what happened was this, that all of the sacrifices that Israel brought before God, they were empty rituals that they were empty sacrifices, and God refused to accept their offerings. And so it was a case, it was a reflection of their unbelief. And this same unbelief was present in Paul's time with respect to Israel. And that was how Paul appealed to the law and the prophets. But Paul goes on in verses 9 to 10. He says this, And David says, Let the table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And here, Paul is quoting Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. Now, Psalm 69 is a psalm by David, that David, who is the anointed king of Israel. And in these verses, the righteous, David himself, the righteous and the afflicted servant, he was praying. He was praying for God's judgment against his enemies. 
And this prayer that David prays, it actually becomes a reality, a reality that is fulfilled in the coming of the anointed servant, Jesus Christ, that there is judgment that awaits those who would oppose Jesus Christ. And the, Paul that, and the point that Paul is making is this, that those who reject the anointed servant, that those who reject the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that they will be judged. That these people, they will receive judgment for rejecting Jesus Christ in their state of hardening. But there's another point that Paul was making here, and it's this. The very thing that hardens their hearts is the gospel itself. And let me repeat that. The very thing that hardens the heart of unbelieving Israel is the gospel itself. You see, in the Old Testament, what is the table? The table is a metaphor of God's provisions. It's a metaphor of community that God has given us abundantly. And somehow, for whatever reason, all of these provisions that God has given, all of this fellowship that we have enjoyed, all of these things have become a snare. They've become a snare for the enemies of the anointed servant. And this table, this table of God's blessings has now become a stumbling block to the enemies of God. And the point that Paul is making is this, that the saving message of the gospel, of the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the very thing that stumbles people. The gospel of God's free grace in the gospel is the very thing that stumbles people. And this is what the older writers have called the strange work of God because the message of God's free grace, the message of God's salvation has become a message of stumbling to sinful people. That has become a message of stumbling to sinners and there's a hardening of their hearts. There's a hardening of hearts against the provisions of God as a hardening of hearts against the gospel of God's free grace, that there's a refusal to see and there's a refusal to listen. And this is the, fl and this is the flip side of knowing the grace of God. This is the sobering reality of judgment. You see, if we have seen, if we know the grace of God in the gospel and we fail to respond in belief and we fail to trust in Jesus, then what we are doing is that we are profaning the grace of God. We are rejecting the free gift of God Himself. You see, for Israel, they were the recipients of the promises of God. They were the recipients of the covenants of God, that they were God's covenant people. And so they were beneficiaries of all of these good things from God. And yet, they chose to rebel against Him. They, they have chosen to disobey God. They have chosen to respond in rebellion. And what the Bible tells us is this, that what awaits them is the reality of judgment, is the fearful and sobering reality of judgment. And the author of the letter to the Hebrews, he actually talks about this. He actually uses a similar language to describe this. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, he says that what we are doing is this, that we are trampling underfoot the Son of God 
and profaning the blood of the covenant by which Christ was sanctified and outraging the spirit of grace. And Paul tells us that this is what unbelieving Israel is doing right now. You know, why, but why does this happen? You know, why do people who have tasted and who have seen the good news of Jesus Christ, why have they rejected this good news? And the reason is this, is because the gospel that, the gospel that they know have never truly gripped their very hearts. The gospel has never truly gripped our very hearts. You see, it's one thing to know the gospel in our minds. It's one thing for us to articulate the gospel, but it's quite another to have our hearts captured by the gospel. The theologian Jonathan Edwards, he says that it's one thing for us to, to know that honey is sweet, but it's quite another for us to taste the sweetness of that honey. It's one thing to know in our minds, but it's quite another to taste it. And it's the same thing in terms of our experience of the gospel. And this shows up in the way that all of us live. You see, if we live while holding to the idea that God is going to bless me for something that I do because I've done well in school, because I've done well at my workplace, I'm a very good uh, witness at the workplace, and because I'm a very good parent, I'm a very good husband or wife, and all of that, if we come with this idea that we do all of these things, that God will bless me, then perhaps we don't really understand what the gospel actually is. Perhaps we don't understand what the gospel of God's grace actually is. And perhaps our hearts have never been captured by the gospel. And just imagine how devastating it would be to call yourself a Christian that you served so much in church for your whole life only for Jesus to tell you at the end of the day that I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And how devastating it would be for all of us if we hear that on that final day. And this is why we are called to not reject, to not harden our hearts against the gospel. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15 actually says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so we are called to heed these words. We are called to trust in Jesus, to obey the gospel, and to not harden our very hearts before the grace of God. And friends, are you amazed by the grace of God? Are you amazed by the grace of God? The, the very grace that transforms and astonishes us at its very core. You know, what do we do in response to God's grace? Do we embrace it with our hearts? Or do we harden our hearts against it? You know, do we sing of God's grace? Or do we yell against it? Are we in awe of His grace? Or are we numb towards it? And that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. And as we come to a close, you know, the question for us is this, you know, how can we remain, how can we be amazed at the grace of God? You know, how can we be captured by what God has done for us? And we can be amazed, we can remain amazed by looking to Jesus Christ, 
we can be amazed by fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ because in Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth and it's through faith in Jesus Christ that we become recipients of God's grace. Jesus is the anointed servant who was rejected for our sake so that we may be accepted in Him. He was rejected for our sake so that we may be accepted in Him. And we are called to gaze upon Him. We are called to gaze upon Jesus in all of His beauty. And this is the very grace, the remarkable grace that has come to us. And for some of us, this might be the first time that we are doing this. And for others, this may be the umpteenth time that we're doing this. But the fact is this, that we can never do too much of it. We can never do too much of coming back to Jesus again and again and again. What is faith? Faith means depending on Jesus. Faith means constantly coming back to Him and see that we are nothing without Him. And indeed, as the old hymn goes, you know, there's nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to thy cross we cling. That is the only thing that we can do, is to receive His grace through faith. And this grace is not well-deserved grace, it's not well-earned grace, but it's unmeasured grace that has come to all of us. It's grace that we do not deserve. And friends, as we